Welcome to this Google audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE, The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 3. Salmon. Sprawled on the cot in his darkening cell at the Honolulu jail, Ilya looked through the bars at the lighted corridor, at the guards and the trustees moving around out there in the onion-yellow light. He struggled violently in a way he had never struggled before. It had nothing to do with actual movement or action of any kind. His body was stilled as if in a catatonic trance. His eyes were still tear-clouded, burning from the fluid sprayed into them. The struggling was all inside his mind. He began to be filled with the distracting terror that this paralysis might be permanent. Suddenly this cell was like a tiny box, a coffin. He wondered if this were what it all finally added up to, lying helpless in an alien cell among strangers. It had never occurred to him that he would not have to pay for having served Uncle, the things he had done for the United Command, and the misdoings in the years before he had joined them. He had not looked for a reward, no more than a few hours off once in a while to enjoy his collection of jazz. But it was bad to know one was so alone and so helpless. Lying there, he watched the cell block door open and close. Trustees were carrying tin plates of food to the inmates. He wondered how long it would be before they came and found him like this. He struggled again, ordering his hands to move. He didn't want to be found here like this. He heard the distant ring of a telephone. It was silenced, and he sweated, concentrating on moving his hands. Inside his skull, he laughed when his fingers twitched and then bent and then straightened. Now he concentrated fiercely upon his feet and his legs, forcing his conscious mind to ignore the bite of the acid in his eyes and nostrils. His feet moved. His legs moved. He did not know how long it was, but finally he was able to sit up on the edge of the cot. His clothing was sweat damp, and he was wide-eyed and tense. He reached out his arms, found support, and pulled himself to his feet. He attempted to take a forward step, but lost his balance and sprawled outward. He caught himself on the lavatory and then dragged his legs after him, straightening. He turned the tap water on full. Slowly, he lowered his face into the rush of water. He let it run for a long time. The burn lessened in his eyes, and the sting ceased in his nostrils. He kept bathing his face with water. He realized that feeling had returned to his legs, and his hands and forearms ached with returning strength. He bent slowly forward and immersed his face in the water. He stayed as long as he could hold his breath. He heard the trustees shout at him from the bars, telling him his food was there. He managed to turn his head and nod. He straightened up at last, massaging his face with his hands and rubbing them briskly across his arms, trying to escape the last traces of the drug as quickly as he could. He walked to the bars and took up the tin tray of food. He ate slowly, holding the tray. Then he replaced it on the floor where it could be collected. He went back to his bunk then and sat down on the side of it. 
He glanced through the bars of the corridor, then bent over and removed his right shoe. Holding the shoe, he turned the heel and shook out a heat bomb pellet, thinking about the force concentrated inside of it. From his tray, he got a spoon and scooped out a small hole under the bars. He set the pellet inside and checked the corridor across his shoulder. He pushed a half dozen cigarettes around the pellet, securing it. He flicked light from his cigarette lighter, setting fire to the paper. He stepped down from the bunk then and walked leisurely across the cell. He dropped the spoon back on the tray and leaned against the bars, trying not to watch the fire flickering in the paper around the heat bomb pellet. He made a mental countdown, watching the corridor. The sound the pellet would make would not be huge, but it would be enough to be heard over all of the cell block. As he waited, he tried to compute the time he would have. Running across the cell, lunging upward against those bars that would have ripped free along the bottom, but perhaps only loosened on the sides. He would have to go out that window in whatever space was blown loose by the heat bomb. He knew it was going to be small. In the instant the heat bomb exploded, the wall quivered with a mild concussion. Elia heard the shouts along the cell block, the pounding of shoes as men ran in the corridors. He did not waste time to look over his shoulder. He sprang up on the bunk, shoving with his hands, finding the bars still friction-heated. He thrust outward with all his strength, twisting as he pushed. He breathed a small prayer of thanksgiving, because three courses of bricks along the window had been blown loose, and his weight against them sent them falling outside the cell. Holding his breath, he pushed upward on the bars, worming his head into the opening. Elias' head and shoulders were outside the window. Behind him, he heard the shouting of men, the ring of keys, the clang of metal. It occurred to him that surely Lieutenant Guerrero would have a special torture and inquisition set up for captured escapees. Guerrero would never stop tormenting him if he were caught and returned now. What better admission of guilt than an escape attempt? Ilya pressed downward on the bricks of the outside of the jail thinking he was like a woman trying to get into her girdle. Only what he hoped to accomplish was to work his body through the opening that was too small to accommodate it. He turned and twisted, feeling his hips sliding through, feeling the cut of the bars, the scraping of the broken wall, and feeling pain, too. The worst pain was the fear of being caught by the legs from behind, of being dragged back into the cell, squirming like a fish. He pushed harder, feeling more bricks give, feeling his hips twist through the hole. A hard hand clutched at his ankle. Panic gave him forward thrust. He lunged outward, hips freed. He lost his balance and went tumbling down toward the paved alleyway. He struggled, trying to turn his body, attempting to land on his feet like a cat. He didn't make it. He struck hard and flat. The breath blasted out of him. Breathing painfully, Ilya sat up and looked around. From above him, he heard the warning shouts of the jailers, the crack of a gun. He scrambled on all fours to the shelter of the wall, trying to buy enough time to recover his breath. He stared down at his feet, realizing for the first time that whoever had caught his ankle had jerked off one of his shoes. For a moment, he slumped, feeling the chill of defeat. How far could he get with one shoe? 
He couldn't exactly lose himself in a crowd. He'd have eyewitnesses to every movie made. A gun fired above him, and the bullet splatted in the pavement near him, galvanizing him into action and shifting a gear in his brain. Well, this was a vacation spot, wasn't it? A land of gaudy shirts and shorts and bikinis and bare feet. Trying to control his desire for frantic haste, Elia pulled off his remaining shoe and his socks and tossed them away. He rolled up his slacks above his ankles and leapt to his feet and ran along the street. Behind him, sirens whistled and alarms flared. Armed men ran from the police station into the street. Elia pulled up his shirt from his trousers and forced himself to saunter through the gathering crowd. The taxi driver stood beside his hack, watching the uniformed men spilling from the police headquarters. Cab, Elia said, opening the rear door and stepping inside the cab. The driver pulled himself reluctantly from the excitement. Behind the wheel, he grinned over his shoulder. Where to? And you ain't the guy they're looking for, are you? Elia shrugged. What do you think? The driver started the car, flipped down the meter, and pulled away from the curb. He made it only to the center of the street when he was halted by two patrolmen armed with rifles. Where are you headed? One of them wanted to know. The driver shrugged, jerking his head toward the rear. I don't know. The fare just got in here. Elia was lying back casually, bare feet up on the seat. He grinned vacantly at the cops, hoping that they had not seen him on the inside of the jail. Kiki driver, let's get away from here. I can't stand the violence. The cops pulled their heads back from the car and waved the cab on. Elia sat up, turning, giving them a wide grin and a bye-bye wave. At the same time, he was saying to the driver, Is this as fast as you can go? The driver suddenly alerted stiffened and stepped on the gas and said, Are you armed, mister? Elia turned his face blank. They so seldom arm the inmates, Charlie. Just drive. He watched the driver's knuckles whiten on the steering wheel. When the cabbie made a sudden move to turn a corner, it was as though Elia could read the slow process of his thoughts. Around the corner and back to the police. Ilya leaned forward and laid the side of his hand against the cabbie's Adam's apple, with only the slightest pressure. I think this is matter enough. You stop when you make this corner. Hmm? Okay, okay, I got nothing against you, buddy. I just want to keep my license. Well, I have my little ambitions, too, Ilya told him. He stepped out of the cab while it was still rolling and strolled through the crowd. A bus was pulling in at the curb at the far corner. He ran across the street and boarded it. When he heard the police sirens behind the bus, he touched the cord and lighted and walked swiftly down the side street. He had gone less than a half block when a Volkswagen swung around the corner ahead of him and cruised toward him. He paused watching it, vaguely troubled without knowing why he should be. There were three men crowded into the small car. And then he recognized the driver. It was the man with the lethal fountain pen. There was an arcade to his left. Elia stepped into it and strode along it, going past the shops that lined it toward a walled court lit with afternoon sun. He winced seeing the cul-de-sac, and knowing there was no chance his friends in the Volkswagen hadn't spotted him, just as they must have been watching the jail. 
Sam and company meant to see that he was framed for Ursula's murder and kept incarcerated. Near the rear of the arcade, Elia paused and looked over his shoulder. The Volkswagen pulled into the curb, and the three men unwound themselves from it, spreading out to search for him. He stepped into the alcove of a curio shop. From this shadowed concealment, he watched his friend of the deadly fountain pen stride toward him, his dark eyes searching the stores, watchful and alert. Elia waited until the man paused, and then he stepped from the alcove. Were you looking for me, my friend? He heard the man gasp, turning. He didn't let him get all the way around because he was too immersed in the memory and rage of what had happened to him in that jail cell. The man threw up his arms to shield himself, and Elia drove his extended fingers into the unprotected armpit and then clipped him across the neck with the side of his hand. He didn't wait to see him fall. He moved through the astonished bystanders, ran across the curb, and leapt into the unattended Volkswagen. He burned away from the curb with the accelerator pressed to the floor. The two men ran after him, shouting, guns drawn. Over and above the wail of horns and shouting, he heard the scream of approaching police sirens. He roared out onto King Street and kept the small car on the upper level of the speed limit, heading toward Diamond Head. When he reached Waikiki, he swung into the drive outside the Pink Hotel where he had been posing as a bellhop where Ursula had been slain. A beach boy sunned himself, waiting for a bus. Elia called over to him. I promise to send this car over to Vic's garage, over near Aala Street. You know the place? If you drive it there, you got yourself a free ride downtown. The boy grinned, teeth gleaming. Mister, you got yourself a deal. Elia did not even wait to see the Volkswagen driven out of the hotel parking lot. He tried to move nonchalantly around to the service entrance. Bond inwardly admitted he was running even if he did manage to keep his pace to a sedate-looking stroll. Five minutes later, he came out of his room in the service quarters of the hotel wearing fresh slacks and a jacket. He glanced longingly toward the cabs that would get him away from here before the police or the men from Sam overtook the Volkswagen and learned from the beach boy where he had gotten the little car. Telling himself that nothing was ever easy, Elia went up in the service elevator to the eighth floor where he found Ursula's room sealed by the law with appropriate notice on the door. He entered with a pass key, and once inside, he relaxed slightly. He laid out the developer and the small plastic cups, his receiver sender, a binocular loop, a small infrared light, and the film he developed earlier for Solo. Placing the binocular loop in his left eye, he scanned the strip of developed film while the film from his own lighter camera was being developed. He paused, staring at the film Solo had taken of Ursula receiving the welcoming lay from the China doll flower girl at the airport. He caught his breath, pleased. He could never have seen it without the jeweler's magnifying loop, but with it he could distinguish the features of the man standing beyond the flower girl, intently watching the small ceremony. He was not too surprised to see that it was the Eurasian who called himself Sam. His next triumph was the excellent close-up likeness he'd been able to get of Sam himself with his own lighter camera. Smiling, pleased with himself, he did not hurry even when he heard the scream of police sirens approaching from downtown. He sighed. 
If Guerrero's police were on his trail, could Sam's commandos be far behind? He placed the pictures and the materials in his jacket pocket and crossed the room carrying the infrared flashlight. On the balcony, he played the light along the railing top. His impassive face lit faintly at the clear yellow stains he found there. Finger marks. He knew who had left those prints. Sam had been leaving yellow stained hand and finger marks ever since he had drunk down the scotch and the neuroquixinal tablet, and he would continue to put them down wherever he went for some time to come. Elia stood there smiling. He did not even stop smiling when he counted the four police cars racing into the drive eight floors below. He returned calmly inside the room and took up the receiver sender, pressing its button and speaking into it, slowly, clearly repeating himself to be certain he was understood. Part 2. Incident at the Hungry Pussycat 1. Napoleon Solo stepped from the taxi at the corner of 3rd Avenue in New York City's East 40s. He paused a moment at the curb, glancing at the large public parking garage, the row of aging brownstones siding a modern three-story white stone. Beyond them he could see the glass and glitter of the United Nations building near the river. He exhaled heavily, saying to himself inwardly, Welcome home, Solo. He was thinking there were moments when he hadn't been sure he would make it, but he did not smile at his small triumph because he still nursed a purple eye and a wilted tender jaw, souvenirs from Oahu. The street was quiet in the afternoon, and Solo went along its walk, going down the steps from the street level and entering Del Floria's cleaning and tailoring shop in the Whitestone building. The tailor, a mild, balding man in his fifties, glanced up from his work and returned Solo's faint smile of greeting. Entering a small cubicle at the rear of the tailoring shop, Solo found himself wondering about this agent of the United Network Command for Law Enforcement. The tailor operated certainly in a minor capacity, one of those who served mostly by only standing and waiting. He was a good tailor, too. Perhaps he'd once been a good field agent. Perhaps he knew nothing more than that behind his modest shop was a complex of steel and stone and bulletproof glass housing one of the strangest and most far-flung law agencies in existence. It was unlikely that the tailor knew all the workings of Uncle, even if he'd once been a field agent, because only a few at the top knew all its bewildering secrets of communication, eradication, and prevention. Behind the eager young faces of the men and women who entered here were the alert minds of carefully selected and wholly dedicated people of almost every race, color, and national origin. A wall parted and Solo stepped through as it closed again silently behind him. He was in the first outer cell of the complex. The receptionist behind the desk smiled at him as if she'd seen him only moments earlier and placed his identification tag upon his lapel. Solo winked at her and strode through the metallically lit corridor, able to see his reflection in the deep, polished surface of the flooring. Other agents, some in shirt sleeves, all intent as if their minds were computers, passed him with brief glances or silent greetings. The silent corridors hummed with ceaseless activity. 
though one could not see them or hear them through the soundproof flooring. A set of underground channels churned with the speeding launches flying in secret from moorings to the East River. On the roof, what appeared to be a large neon-lit advertising billboard concealed a high-powered shortwave antenna, elaborate receiving and sending gear, pulsing constantly, attuned to every change in the world around it, reaching out like prying eyes and searching feelers into every dark cranny of the world. The battle which Uncle fought wasn't new. It was as old as man's conscience. Only the weapons were different now, incorporating computers, spy planes, atomic weaponry, and the finest brains money could hire. Solo was not a simple man, nor a naive one. He prided himself upon his urbanity, sophistication, and clear-eyed recognition of the truth about worldly matters, rather than the hypocritical things one expected to be believed and swallowed. But here in this air-conditioned maze of steel corridors and soundproof suites, one felt the strength and the moral principles that guided it. A door slid into the wall as Solo approached, and he entered the private sanctum of Alexander Waverley. There had been no delay, and Solo knew why. Every movement in these corridors was continuously monitored on closed-circuit television, and electronic brain scans rejected or admitted one at all the noblest doors in the place. Waverley looked up from behind his desk. The top of it was cluttered at the moment with small, luminous maps coded messages and directives. Waverly's hair was toppled over his rutted forehead. His hair was black, and Solo suspected that Waverly's barber dyed it with each trimming, because if Waverly had a vanity, it was the matter of his age. He admitted, like an aging prize fighter, to an obviously curtailed age. In his case, he would tell you he was in his late fifties. No one ever disputed him but he had a brilliant record in army intelligence that dated back almost that far. Solo supposed his superior was actually in his late sixties, but Alexander Waverley was walking proof that age was all a matter of the mind. Hello, uh, Soto, Waverley said without smiling. He kept a hundred matters of utmost urgency in the forepart of his brain, but he had the poorest kind of memory for names or other trivia, even in the cases of his most highly rated operatives. Waverly's rhesus monkey eyes under bushy brows seemed more vacant than ever, but Solo had long ago learned this meant the deepest sort of concentration. He respected Waverly as he did few men. It was easy to have ideals when these human heroes were at a distance, but when you worked closely with any man, you got to know him well, in all his weaknesses and strengths. One must conclude from your report, Mr. Soto, that your triumph in Oahu was less than breathtaking, Waverly said. Solo smiled. As Waverly understated his agency's dangers and accomplishments, he minimized his failures, but Solo knew how they hurt. The pain clawed at him. I fell flat on my face all right, and before we go any further, I want to make a statement that I hope you won't construe as an alibi. It may well be the pattern in this case, if it turns out that there is a pattern, or even a case left after the recent setback. Waverly pressed a button. A wall panel slid back, revealing a small screen which instantly glowed with gray light.
I assure you that we do have a case left, Waverly said. A strong case. Perhaps we are in a better position than we have been at any time previously. We must negate any past failure by concentrating on the future. Learning the identity and the goal of our friend Tixie Ildo would have been easy if we could have kept the young woman alive. But perhaps that would have been too easy. I'm sure Thrush would feel this, and this must be our attitude. Now, what is your idea of the possible pattern of this affair? Simplicity, Solo said. Utter simplicity. Everything's so obvious you overlook it because it's so simple. Waverly nodded, smiling faintly but impressed. Solo could see that. Yes, extremely clever and sophisticated. Using simple attack in a world that has grown more and more complicated. Yes, very ingenious. Solo saw Waverly digesting this thought, putting it through the computer of his brain. He did not underestimate this power of his immediate superior because Waverly was one of the five men at the peak of Uncle's organizational structure. On Madison Avenue in the advertising world, it was a matter of having a key to one's private bathroom. Here it was a little more than that. Waverly was one of the few men who knew every one of the secret entrances into this building. And it was more than status with Waverly. One reached his place of trust and responsibility only through awesome sacrifice and dedication. If any men knew every detail of Uncle's operation, it would be Waverly. And the four other men, each of a different nationality and background, at the pinnacle of the organizational structure. The organizational chart of Uncle broke down the personnel into six sections, each subdivided into two departments, one of which overlapped the functions of the department below it. Waverly, with his four associates, headed up policy and operations. In descending order of rank, the other departments were operations and enforcement, and it was in enforcement where Solo was listed as chief agent enforcement and intelligence, intelligence and communication, communications and security, and security and personnel. It was intelligence and communications whom Waverly alerted now with a buzzer that prepared the screen for briefing. A woman's soft voice rose from the waiting screen. Yes, Mr. Waverly? The picture's transmitted here by, uh, Kariakin, Miss, uh... He let that part go. Yes, Mr. Waverly? Where is Elia? Solo asked as they awaited the first briefing pictures. He had a bit of a sticky problem getting out of Hawaii. A matter of murder charges. Good grief. Yes, you may say that. Solo sank into the leather-covered chair, glaring at the white screen. He bit his lip as the first picture was flashed upon it. It was the picture he had taken of the little flower girl at the moment she had tossed the lay over Ursula's head at the Honolulu International Airport. It was magnified many times and showed people in the immediate background. This young woman is Polly Jade Ng, said the voice over the speakers. Of Chinese ancestry, she is believed to have become involved with an agent for Thrush through a dealing in uncut heroin. Solo sighed. One got so near and yet fell so far short. The picture changed and Solo sat forward. 
This man in the background is a Chinese-American named Samuel Su Yan. He was born in Dallas, Texas, attended public and private schools in Texas. He was rejected by the U.S. Army for moral reasons. He attended a university in Shanghai. For some years, he worked with the Peking government as an agent in Japan, Vietnam, and South Korea. He was deported from the Philippine Islands. He was reported killed in a plane crash two years ago. Obviously, he has been very much alive and working underground so cleverly that no agent of ours spotted him in all these months, Waverly said as the picture flashed off the screen, followed by a second close-up of Sam Su Yan in a pink hotel suite. Ilya Kiryokin took this picture, Waverly said. The woman's voice said, This is a closer picture of the subject, now definitely identified as Samuel Su Yan. At this moment, he has been located by agents as a guest of the Acapulco International Hotel in Mexico. According to Agent Kiryakin, this man accosted Kiryakin as he left the suite of the slain thrush agent, Ursula Baines Neferth, forcing him to return to the room and to await the arrival of the police. Kiryakin reports that to his belief, Samuel Su Yan is a paid agent for Thrush. Thrush is a supernation without boundaries and an international conspiracy which... Come, come, Miss... Um, Waverly said impatiently. Get on with it. Believe me, we know what Thrush is. Yes, Mr. Waverly. The voice continued unruffled, as unperturbed as a delayed recording. Agent Kiriakin managed by appearing to drug his own drink to induce subject to intake 10 milligrams of neuroquixinol. Neuroquixinol is a drug which causes a sweat gland and epidermal reaction which... All right, all right, Waverly said. You may have time for all of the basics, but we do not. If that's all, thank you and out. The briefing screen darkened, and for a moment, the two men sat, mulling over what had been seen and heard. Solo said, Acapulco for me? Waverly's head came up. I thought your report stated you were returning here for additional information on the slain Miss... What's her name? The thrush spy. Yes, that's right. Elia and I found only a meaningless letter, and our code people confirm it is no known code and a silver whip. I recall that Ursula had been part of a nightclub act with another woman in which the Silver Whip had been a major prop. I saw the act, Waverly said with a faint smile. Quite educational. Kraft, Ebby, and the Marcus de Sade could have learned quite a bit. I wanted to see those briefing pictures again, Solo said. Until Elia turned up this bit on Samuel Sue Yan, the Whip and the former partner seemed my only link with Ursula, and what she became, a spy for Thrush. Waverly pressed a button, gave an order, and in less than a minute, a picture, obviously some years old, was flashed on the screen. The woman's voice said, This is the last nightclub act of Ursula Baines and her partner, Candy Kane, whose real name was Esther Katmeyer. Our notes show that Miss Baines stated she hoped to refine this act, find a new partner, and return to show business. 
A small muscle worked in Solo's taut jaw. He thought this was Ursula's dream, her hope for a future that was now forever denied to her. She'd brought along that whip, hoping that Solo and the United Network could somehow protect her from her former bosses at Thrush. She had been alive and lovely and filled with plans for a new beginning. Solo said, What I need, Miss McNabb, is the name and present whereabouts of Ursula Bain's former partner, Candy Kane, nay, Esther Katmeyer. Do you have that? The unseen voice from the stereo speakers said softly, Of course we do, Mr. Solo. 2. Ilya Kiriakin lounged in the back seat of an Acapulco taxi, a vintage Dodge that limped asthmatically through the sun-struck streets, dodging the bicycles that were everywhere like fleas in the hair of a dog. The driver batted continually at the horn, never pausing at an intersection, and miraculously pulled into the curb before the Acapulco International Hotel. He reached back and swung the door open, we are alive, senor. Elia smiled at him. Remind me next time to walk. A long walk, senor. Muy caliente. In the sun. Very hot. The resort town lay prostrate in the sun before Elia. A matter of deep browns and Mexican reds. Of stout gringos in shorts and pot-bellied shirts and grass sandals. The American females on the prowl and the young Mexicans stalking the streets like unsubtle beasts of prey. They'd get together, and they would deserve each other. Elia glanced toward the blue waters below him. Fair and unreal, the palms rustling like whispering castanets. Except for the people, it was a lovely place, Elia decided as he entered the hotel lobby. The clerk told him that his room was waiting for him reserved and surely to his liking, and overlooking the beach. Elia could display no enthusiasm. He was becoming disenchanted with vacation places where death lurked on expense accounts submitted to thrush, and yet paid in the end by the unsuspecting and unwary. He drew out a three-by-five enlargement of the close-up he had made of Sam Su Yan in Honolulu. I am looking for this man, a friend of mine he told the clerk. I was told he was registered here. Ah, si, senor, the clerk smiled. Senor Samuel Cossi, if you say so. In room 421, would you like me to ring him and announce you? I'd like to astonish him, Ilya said, purposely using the imprecise word. Of course. Ilya turned and walked toward the barred cage of the bronzed elevator, some transient flicker in the clerk's face suggested he would call and announce him anyway. Obviously, Sam paid well to avoid astonishments. Sam awaited him at room 421, standing in the doorway, drink in hand. He gave him a brief nod and a false suggestion of a smile. I could have killed you as you stepped off the elevator. I would like you to remember this. You would have killed me in the Wahoo if your assassins could have worked it, Ilya replied with a matching tug of a smile, muscles about his mouth. One should never assign tasks, 
Sam said with a slight shrug of his knobby shoulders. He wore gray slacks and checked shirt, hand-tooled boots, looking more like a Texan than ever, one with a sense of humor that dictated a Eurasian mask, no matter how well-trained his minions. If you want the thing done, you do it yourself. That's why I'm here. Would you care to compliment me on my tracking you across 3,000 miles of ocean? Sam bowed, motioning Ilya past him into the room, which was furnished in the gringo's decorator's notion of authentic Aztec Mexican. Sam closed the door and turned. I find in you a certain native cleverness, as opposed to true intellect, of course. Still, I am here, and so are you. True, but I wanted you here. You made this decision after your men failed to determine Honolulu? Sam nodded. At that point, I was defaming you at the time for the stupid trick you engineered with the scotch. Ilya almost smiled. The neuroquixinol. Interesting, isn't it? The way it works on the sweat glands and the epidermis, so the subject leaves a clear trail of yellow stains behind him wherever he goes, whatever he touches. It was developed by our chemists, and its lasting power remains up to a week. And you'll be pleased to hear, there are almost no side effects. I was pleased to leave you a trail visible to your infrared lamps. I wanted you led to me when our hirelings were unable to stop you. I dislike having to say this so bluntly, but I mean to have you stopped. Permanently. I never suspected your intentions were any less from the moment we met. I only failed to see why you consider me worthy of so much of your attention and effort. Sam nodded toward the portable bar. Pour yourself a drink. From any bottle, I assure you. My plans for you do not include the use of some chemist's trick with no side effects. Ilya poured himself a drink. Sam strolled around the room, stood near the balcony watching him. He said, In my life there have been many things I have done that I viewed myself with displeasure. I have not always approved of every action circumstances have forced upon me, but this is not true here and now with you. I tell you, I feel invigorated and renewed at having you here like this, your Russian smugness, your smirk of triumph. You have outwitted three of my agents and the Honolulu police. You'll surely grant me that it was a bit more than child's play, pinched between the forces of an ambitious police lieutenant and three assassins trained to kill on sight like canines. A helicopter picking me up off the beach at Waikiki? Why shouldn't I be permitted some faint satisfaction at some accomplishment? What does it take to impress you, Sam, eh? My father's people are old. They lived in starvation, oppression, family, flood. In every disaster known to nature and man, they learned great patience, quite alien to your Russian stolidity. We don't look to the battles that are won, my young friend, but to the outcome of the war. Does that answer your question? Ilya finished off his drink, replaced the glass. May I present my proposition to you, Sam? It may prove to be worth your while. We are quite aware of your background, 
even to your effects being found in a plane crash fatal to 40 passengers and crew. We did not know that you had gone underground to work for Thrush. We know all of this now. Sam met his gaze levelly. For all you know, I may be Thrush. You may be, or you may be an underling with delusions of grandeur. Some more of your ancestors oriented the viewing of the end results. We are prepared to offer our protection in exchange for certain cooperation from you. Sam Suyan laughed. His mismatched oriental Texan face worked uncertainly, pulling muscles into play that had almost atrophied from disuse. The sound burst out of him like a strange off-key sob, but it was laughter. May Buddha look out from his celestial home to see an incredible arrogance of this puppy. Sam laughed again, that tormented, unaccustomed sound. Do you truly delude yourself that I permitted you to walk into this room so that you might offer me some ridiculous cop-and-robber trade for turning stool pigeon? Ilya shrugged. I found the worst crimes in your dossier. You found nothing in my record to match what you have permitted yourself to walk into. Sam Su Yan's face was chilled. The unreconciled parts went hard and waxen. He dropped his glass on the carpeting and slapped his hands together. The three men seemed to appear from the woodwork as silent and quick as termites. Elia recognized one of them as the man who had attacked him with the acid-loaded fountain pen in Honolulu. He supposed that the other two were his fellow assassins. He shrugged his jacket up on his slender shoulders but made no other move. Sam said, You'll forgive me if I've grown bored with this depressing exchange. When I heard you had escaped from the island, I entertained the notion that your wits might be stimulating an exchange in conflict. I now know better. You looked better from afar. Sam shook his head and patted around the room in his Texan boots. He seemed to forget that Elia was in the room. He went over to the baggage rack and rummaged for a moment inside. But when he straightened, his hands were empty. None of the three guards moved. They continued to poise like kill-trained canine corps, their soulless eyes fixed on Kyriakin, as if awaiting the one-word signal that meant attack and slaughter. Suddenly, Sam Suyan gave the command. He jerked his head toward Kyriakin. Prepare him. Kyriakin spun on his heel, thrusting his hand under his jacket, snagging at the butt of his uncle's special, but he could not reach it in time. Sam's assassin sprang upon him without speaking. A hand chopped him across the neck. A hand struck him at the base of his spine. A hand caught him in the groin. Expert hands caught his arms, tore away his jacket and shirt, and tossed his gun and holster on the bed. A straight chair was pushed up behind Elia. One of the thugs said, Sit! And Elia was thrust down upon the chair. Elia struggled and ended with his wrists and ankles secured. They worked smoothly and efficiently and deftly and then stepped back, standing unmoving, waiting for the next command. Elia glanced at Sam. Surely you have sense enough to know you can't get away with killing me, not here in this hotel. Sam walked toward him, face an ugly mask, expressionless. 
I don't need to remind you that your agents have harried me constantly since I arrived here, that they are aware you are in this hotel, in this hotel room, but I prefer you permit me to make whatever decisions are necessary concerning you, because I assure you they were laid out in great detail long before you arrived here. You'll commit a serious blunder by not releasing me at once. Please, Sam spoke sharply. If your men call your room in this hotel, be assured your voice will answer the telephone. Your voice will assure them that all is proceeding smoothly. He walked back to the bag on the rack, drew from it a syringe and needle. He held it up to the light and forced a drop through the needle and then returned to where Elia sat watching him. Will you sit quietly, or must you be held? This won't hurt you, as I injected. It is, in fact, a discovery of our chemists, and I wish I could assure you it has no side effects, but... His mouth pulled into a faint smile of pride. I can't do that. I must tell you, as a matter of fact, it does have quite unpleasant side effects. Drugged, Elias said with contempt. What high-quality intellect devised this hoary scheme, Sam? Unfortunately for you, I'm afraid you'll discover nothing this way. In fact, this particular nerve stimulant has never been tested on human beings, my young guinea pig. In the lab, it has created some exciting results. I suggest you not be contemptuous until we learn who wins the war, hmm? He lifted his eyes and spoke to the guards. Subdue him. Sam held the hypodermic needle in his hand, but he could not resist a final boast as the men held Elia's inner arm open to the injection. We are not unsettled enough to kill you and leave your body here to draw local and international police, my friend. What we are accomplishing is much too important and much too secret for such resulting publicity. I assure you, we have better and more long-range plans for you than this. As he spoke, he injected the point of the needle into the collateral radial artery from the parent trunk of the profunda brachii inside the elbow joint. Slowly, Sam said. This is accomplished slowly, Mr. Kiriakin. No thrust of the needle and spurt of solution. This takes a little time. You will be patient, though. Won't you, Mr. Kiriakin? 